Hello, Mr. Paul. I am so pleased to welcome you to your new home in Tabula Rasa, the city where carefree is a way of life. Your way. That's exactly what I need after the year I've just had. The divorce, selling my business, turning 40. It's me time from now on. Daddy, when do I get to go on the superhero ride? Soon, honey. Daddy's just got to finish a little business first. Typical. And you said you'd change after retiring. We do find that many of our residents move here after reaching a turning point, a need for a life reset. I think you'll feel right at home amongst our exclusive clientele, living their best life with no compromise. Can't wait. Let me just install your access app. There you go. This will give full access to your all-inclusive facilities. Luxury furnished penthouse, the supercar garage, daily designer wardrobe and gourmet menu handpicked just for you by our team of experts. Fantastic. Your calendar's also packed with fun events with values-matched peers. And of course, me and my fellow concierges are available 24-7 to fulfill your requests. And my, uh, interiority editing appointment? Uh, the clinic is confirmed for this evening. Personality traits retuned to maximum agreeableness for our community. Regrets and bad decisions wiped away like they never happened. Perfect. This is boring! I want to go to the candy cafe now! Soon, Heather. So that just leaves the final payment. Is it okay to collect now? Yes, yes, please, take her. Come along, Heather. Get off me! Daddy! Where are you going? Where is she taking me? At its core, cannot exist without fear. We long to be frightened. We desire a glimpse into the darkness. We conjure creatures and monsters, all the while knowing deep in our souls the terror is out there. Brace yourself. For the No Sleep Podcast. High tech luxury living is the wave of the future. All those amazing amenities are worth a small sacrifice. That's what we learned from author Lysel Jones from the tale which was this episode's cold open, Tabula Rasa City, performed by Ash Millman, Andy Cresswell, and Penny Scott Andrews. We welcome you into the 1990s, our final decade of the season as we work our way through the themes of old-time television. I know many of you were born in the 90s, so I apologize for making you feel old when we talk about that decade in the same breath as old-time television. 
But what a time it was for television. Near the end of the decade, a new fad called high-definition TV started. And if you wanted creepy chills, you could watch Goosebumps, Are You Afraid of the Dark, and weird shows like Twin Peaks and that uh, spooky alien show. What was it called again? I can't remember. Something to do with a fox and a scully, if I recall. Ah, well, I'm sure someone knows the true name of it. After all, they say the truth is out there. And as we work our way toward the end of season 18, we're also nearing the end of 2022. The holiday season is upon us, and I've decided to get into the spirit of that most glorious and festive time of year. That's right, I'm talking about Black Friday sales. So, starting Monday, November 21st, right through to the end of Black Friday, we'll be selling season passes 13 through 18 for only $20 each. That's 20% off for the entire week. We're not selling any bundles at the moment, but if you're missing a recent season or want to jump in and experience well over 66.6 hours of content per season, plus those exclusive bonus episodes, now's the time to do it. Just go to seasonpass.thenosleeppodcast.com and find the season or seasons you want to get for only $20 each. The No Sleep Podcast Black Friday Sale, only from November 21st through the 25th. And now, our stories are starting. You'd better not leave. Our tales are quite true if you want to believe. In our first tale, we meet a man who wants nothing but the best for people. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have such a positive person around you? Well, in this tale, shared with us by author Samuel McQuail, we discover the man's unique ability to remove negative thoughts from people if only everyone was willing to be so positive. Performing this tale is David Alt. So don't be a negative Nelly. Let this man help you feel better. You just have to think happy thoughts. I can see them, you know. Every time I step onto the street, I see the little black curls of smoke polluting everyone's minds, squirming, floating, writhing their way through otherwise pristine thoughts. He worries about his loans. She fears for her mother's health. They try to choose between saving their crumbling relationship or finding another. Everything smoke touches turns a little darker until soon an entire lobe of grubby grey has blossomed into sight. I can't stand it. Who could? Knowing all the nasty things that make smiles droop and tears fall, I can't stand to see them suffer like that. So I pluck the smoke out. It doesn't hurt. I would never do something if it really hurt. I just reach forward with my mind and pull out the wispy worms before they can dig too deep. Sometimes they still leave a little grey behind, but it always clears. And then the smiles are back. Those big, beautiful grins I love so much. It only takes a few minutes, and it makes me so warm to help everyone in town. I don't think they know. People love being around me, 
I used to think it might be because I take their bad thoughts away that they were being selfish. I had to pluck that thought out of myself. How could I make anyone happy if I wasn't happy? And I am happy now. Very happy. And everyone loves being with me because I make them happy too. Isn't that what friends are for? But sometimes I find people who've caught on. Who know. New residents, out-of-town guests, or those rare ones born with my gift. I can tell they're like me because their heads are full of nasty things. Less like smoke and more like... uh, Oil. Thick and viscous with everyone's thoughts inside their head. I try my best to pick away at their troubles, to, to let them know it's okay to have a gift like this. That they should make people happy. But it's so hard with some of them. They think the black smoke is important. That people should worry and be afraid and it's wrong to never be sad. It takes me a long time to pluck that feeling out of their heads. It's such a deep-seated, nasty little thought, isn't it? So insidious and corruptive. But it's okay. I understand how hard it is to get rid of something like that yourself. How it can infest everything until your brain is full to the brim. That's why I'm here. I help them to be happy, and to see why they need to make everyone else happy too. You understand that, right? You're not like her, are you? She was a nice young woman from many months ago. She had so many reasons to be happy. A loving girlfriend, a beautiful house, a nice job. But she wasn't. No, not at all. Her mind was ugly. Filled with oily thoughts and wrong ideas. Ideas like how strange it was no one else in town had the same black smoke she'd seen before. She thought everyone was wrong. Thought we were all scary and strange. Us being happy made her unhappy. That wasn't so bad. I'd seen it before, you know. Gifted people are always scared of what I do when they find out. But I pluck away the fear, and they become just as happy as me. Not her. No. It was bad enough she wasn't happy. Bad enough it took me days to wriggle through her mind and pull the darkness away, only to find an even blacker pitch inside. Imagine that. How truly, desperately unhappy did you have to be to hide it so? No, 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 no. Bad enough one person in a hundred thinks such thoughts, but for her to put those thoughts in others... (sighs) My apologies, let me just... uh... There we go. The anger is all gone now. But you see how horrible it is. Even I became unhappy with her. Morris was happy. He didn't need to mourn his wife anymore. And the Joneses? The stillbirth was so hard on them, I simply had to take that away. And let's not forget poor little Timmy being scared of his uncle. He's such a nice, happy man with good, happy thoughts. The boy needed to focus on the silver linings, you know? But not with her. 
around. No, she just had to slip in all the negative thoughts to make the Joneses cry, make Morris lonely, make Timmy... <sighs> it took me days to sort them all out again, let me tell you. I couldn't stay quiet. I had to confront her, I had to. But she wouldn't listen. She knew what I could do, and she hated that I did it. I never found out why, you know. She was screaming such nonsense about right and wrong and freedom. Honestly, she was far too far gone. There was nothing but roiling pitch in her head. She couldn't see, no matter how hard I tried. I do free people. I free them from the nasty thoughts, from the burden of unpleasantness. I kept trying to pluck hers away, but more and more kept forming until everyone's eyes were on us, filling with the same insidious thoughts. I made it quick. I really did. It took me quite some time to clear away the thoughts she'd left behind, little worms squirming inside the deepest reaches of everyone's minds. I understand. It wasn't something you could be happy about. Even I wasn't happy until I plucked the guilt from my head. But now I am, and so are they, and even though she was never happy, I do wish she could have been. If only she'd accepted me. Oh dear, I've made a few little curls appear in your mind, haven't I? I suppose it is to be expected, all this talk of unhappiness. If you'll just let me reach inside for a moment... Ooh, ah... Uh, there. All better. Of course, you'd remember what I said. I never took that away. We remember everything. It'd be so cruel to take the memories away. And I'm not a cruel person. I just want everyone to be happy, you see? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure everyone has stories about the town in which they grew up. The unique people, the quirky locations, the local legends. But in this tale, shared with us by author C.M. Scandreth, we meet a man who grew up in a town unlike any other. A town full of angels. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Graham Rowett, Kristen DiMercurio, and Mick Wingert. So whether you believe in them or not makes no difference. You just have to live on a wing and a prayer when you grow up in Angelton. I was raised by a town full of angels. I know that's an outrageous claim, but please let me explain. This isn't something divulged lightly, as it recounts a hard-won truth that I've wrestled with for the bulk of my adult life. I can see now that the evidence was always there, right in front of me, but I wanted to deny it so that I could carry on thinking that 
heaven and hell were just pleasant abstractions. Something to only really think about once I'd stumbled past midlife and into old age. Maybe even the psychiatrists knew it was something more. They explained my delusions were the result of trauma, but that didn't explain why I had such complete and vivid memories of my time in that town. That perfect little place, so unironically named Angelton. Eventually, the drugs dulled my recollections, blurred my fading memories to white until they mingled with the pale painted walls of the psychiatric institute until I couldn't tell what was real and what was fantasy. But long after they deemed me sane enough to be released, I managed to pick it all apart again. I managed to tease out my real childhood experiences from the fragile tapestry of sterile, bleached-out strands and pieced together a picture of what happened to me in that town. The story that follows is woven from the threads that I managed to salvage. My first memory is from age five, my own birthday party. It seemed like the whole town had come to our house. There were so many folks in our yard. I couldn't know it at the time, but it's more than likely the entire town was in our street that day, come to celebrate the birthday of little Mikey. There were so many presents that they filled the living room like a giant Christmas tree made of cardboard and colored paper. I spent hours unwrapping them. All the friends of my family clustered around, their bright smiles urging me to keep going long after my child's mind and body grew weary of the task. I don't remember my mother picking me up and taking me to bed after I fell asleep in the middle of eating a slice of the three-tier cake. But she told that story so often that it became a part of my memories anyway. It's hard to pinpoint exactly when I became aware that I was different, but I think the first stirrings of it began at school. I had no idea that the school had opened just for me, that until I arrived it had lain unused since it was built some 40 years before. Everything was brand new, but I thought that's just how things were, just like the schools on television. My first teacher, Mrs. Cassiel, seemed new to things too, not quite knowing how to fill up all the hours of the school day. She read to us a lot, from Reader's Digest and Encyclopedia Britannica, stuff far above our age level. The rest of the time, she let us play and paint while she watched over her little lambs her angelic smile suitably doting. The other children weren't like me, either. I recall they were strange, serious little things who always seemed to take their cues from me, from little Mikey. If I did something, so did they, incorporating it into their growing lexicon of behaviors, as though adding pages to their primers on how to be a child... At the time, I didn't process this. I couldn't. Only with the benefit of hindsight can I look back and see how odd it was. Something I did notice at the time was that my school didn't seem to work quite like the ones on television. With each birthday, I moved up a class, 
but my little lemming peers did not come with me. Each new year meant a new teacher that was normal enough, but it also brought a completely new set of students. As I grew up, I became increasingly aware of the rest of the town. It was an idyllic place, as perfect as any little town could ever be, all of it locked permanently somewhere in the late 1950s. After school, my friends and I rode our brightly painted bicycles to the ice cream parlor, then took our dripping colorful cones to the neatly manicured park to watch women in pretty floral frocks walk their pedigree dogs. On weekends, the fathers of the families in our street would wash their cars until they gleamed, then cut their lawns and trimmed their hedges, while the wives made lemonade and cookies. I don't even remember any rainy days. In retrospect, it was an eerie paradise, and I had no idea this was not how the rest of the world in 1978 operated. To me, it was completely normal. Television ruled the evenings in Angleton with every family gathering in their near-identical living rooms to watch the broadcasts from the local station. There were only two channels, and they both played variations of the same shows, mostly I Love Lucy, Dennis the Menace, My Little Margie, and Leave it to Beaver. TV time was practically sacred in the town, and whenever there was a new innovation in TV technology, trucks would roll through the streets delivering the latest color, remote-controlled sets. And those delivery days were pretty much the only time I saw anyone from outside of Angleton. All the rest of the town supplies went through Muriel's Department Store, or Wormwood's Groceries. I'd asked about the rest of the world, of course, like any kid my age, except apparently the ones in my class. I was curious, and I had many questions. My teacher at the time, Mr. Moroni, seemed to answer as best he could at first. But on the day I grew particularly persistent and shrill, childishly pushing against his reticence and inability to answer my more burning questions, I earned my first true taste of who and what the residents of Angleton were. But how can the president still be Eisenhower? I asked, petulant and defiant. A president can't serve more than eight years. It says so in the encyclopedia at home. I, I looked it up. Mr. Moroni, a short, swarthy man of Italian descent, shook his head and took several short paces toward my desk. Your encyclopedia is wrong. <laughs> but it can't be. Mrs. Cassiel said everything in it was true. Everything except that. There was an unfamiliar, resonant note in his voice that made the hairs on my arms lift with unseen static. I think you're lying, I told him, growing bolder now, oddly thrilled by the sensation and the effect I was having. I think you're just a stupid, lying old man, and you don't really know anything. I'd registered that the other children in class were staring at me, but only now did I realize that they were all standing. And Mr. Moroni 
no longer seemed a short and affable idiot. Suddenly, he appeared huge and threatening, his facial features carved from some exotic wood as he loomed over my desk. Why are you being like this? His fists clenched, walnut knuckles on my desk. Why won't you just behave like a normal boy? The tears started before I could stop them, right as I realized I'd gone too far. Stop that! His lips were wrong, barely moving at all. You stop crying right now! The imperative in his voice stimulated something right at the back of my skull, flooding my brain with fear that paralyzed my limbs. I'd never felt anything like this before. But the tears did not stop. Instead, they they flowed faster, and a sucking, ugly sob tore from my throat, an animal sound that only served to enrage my teacher further. The desk splintered under the weight of pale fists as Mr. Moroni changed. For half a heartbeat, I saw him true. He was someone else. Something else. A creature of white and gold, all crescent fangs and pale eyes. The silhouette of extra disjointed limbs tearing free from its shoulders. Stop it! The voice blared in my ears like a thousand trumpets. And in my stupefied state of trembling terror, my bladder let go and I complied. I never questioned him again after that. I never asked anyone in Angleton about the outside world. I wasn't sure why, but some primitive part of me knew instinctively that my teacher wasn't the only one with this power. Beneath the carefully curated smiles and innocuous personalities of the townsfolk, lay dormant the same frightening thing that my mild-mannered teacher had become, so shockingly glimpsed in that singular moment of unbridled fury. I was living amongst monsters. It was like unlatching barn doors in a storm. Once open, there was no way of closing them again the cyclone of truth too powerful to push against. With my new knowledge, everything was thrown into stark relief, and I began to really see how strange my town was, and how perfectly everyone emulated the TV shows they were all so enamored with. Even though I was desperate to believe that I'd only imagined the incident in my class, it was impossible to ignore the weirdness surrounding me. In those moments I was alone, in those precious windows of time when my mother was picking out laundry and my father tinkered with his car in the driveway, I learned to tune the TV to stations broadcasting from outside Angleton. Though the pictures were snowy and the sound crackled with static, I began to find out that the place I lived in wasn't just odd. It was absolutely fucked. The image that assaulted my eager eyes and ears were of a place that was 
totally out of time with us. It was a completely different world out there. How we had remained so insulated, I wasn't sure, but I knew it had something to do with what I had seen Mr. Moroni become. Obviously, there was only one thing I could do, one course of action that seemed rational and sane. I had to go to the edge of the town and leave it. I had to see the outside world for myself. I packed food into a tartan square of cloth, then tied it to a stick, just like the children I'd seen in books and on TV, practically rule one of how to run away. It was a fair hike to the low stone wall that encircled the town, and by the time I'd got there, I'd already eaten a cheese sandwich and sucked down half of my bottle of lemonade. The wall was built of curious, chalky white stone and was only about a foot high. It seems pointless, nothing more than a boundary marker, as even the smallest child could climb over it easily. But a strange trepidation wormed through me as I walked toward it. My gut heavy and cold, like I'd drunk too much ice water too fast. This is wrong, some inner thought cautioned. You shouldn't be doing this. But I was stubborn, set on my course, and I couldn't turn back now. None of the kids on TV would have given up because of a stupid voice in their head. As I lifted my leg over the white boundary, I felt a feathery, pleasant sensation tickle across my flesh. Then, as I placed my other foot down on the outside of the wall, I began to wonder what I was doing there. Why I had a bindle over one shoulder. What was behind me seemed utterly unimportant, not even interesting enough to turn around and look at. So, I wandered onward, away from the fast-fading memories behind me, and out into the real world. My mother found me curled up under a hedgerow a few miles out from Angleton and carried me back asleep. When I awoke, my head was full of fog. Confusion reigned for a long time before my drowned memories began to resolve themselves. You've done a terrible thing. My mother stood with my father at my bedside. A terrible, terrible thing. I'd never seen her look so disappointed in me, and it hurt. But, but I, I, I don't understand. My father looked angry, but not at me. His simmering rage was directed at my mother. He isn't a miracle. He isn't born of our union, is he? If he was born of us, the ward wouldn't have stripped his mind, wouldn't have made him forget. Genuine emotion racked my mother's perfect 30-year-old features, tears striping her cheeks. I realized I'd never seen her cry real tears before. I realized I'd never seen anyone cry real tears apart from myself that day in the classroom. I just wanted a baby. I wanted to know what it was like to be a real mother, to raise a real child, not just pretend. 
She spat that last word as though it were a bitter draft, poisoning her tongue. My father took a step away from her, plainly disturbed by my mother's candid display. His movements were stiff, his eyes an actor peering through slits in a mask. I've told the mayor. The police will be here soon to take you and this boy away. Tucked in my bed, blankets under my chin, I tried to process what was happening. Fear coiled in my bowels, my bladder threatening to rebel and embarrass me all over again. What will happen to us? My mother wiped at her tears with the back of her hand, then stared at the damp shine on her skin. You'll both be destroyed. When he breached the barrier, he put the whole town at risk. Your scent will be the wind for Seraphim and Fallen alike to sniff out. Although I sensed the threat they held, the words themselves meant nothing to me. We didn't pray in this town. There was no God in our lives. There was a pretty church, since there were churches on TV, but only bake sales and plays happened there. I'd never seen anyone pray or preach. Mama? For one last moment, she was still my mother. Her smile was warm, genuine, nothing but love. And I knew without a single doubt that she truly did love me. Even though the rest of the town were actors in their own survival play, performing a perverse pantomime and feeling nothing, this one woman, this one angel, had fallen and risen all at once by managing to truly fall in love with a little boy. Then she was a blur of white and gold, eight feet of feathered wings filling my bedroom as she tore at my father. She tore off his skin and clawed through his breastbone until the cowboy and Indian wallpaper of my room was painted with golden ichor. We didn't make it far. Before we even saw the wall of stones that encircled the town, we were intercepted. All pretense of humanity had fled the town now. White wings thundered all about the houses and fields. Alien faces of guilt and alabaster bared feline fangs and came for us. I wish that we had been caught and killed by them, just as the town folk had planned. I wish they had managed to snuff us out before the winds had betrayed us to the enemies of the town. But that was not to be how things played out. The sky darkened, and black feathers rained down, each longer than my arm. My beautiful, terrible mother, cradling me in her angel arms, folded her great wings about me to shield me from the chaos unfolding around us. Though I saw little, I heard much. Voices like orchestras of woodwind and brass clashed in the air. The sounds of breaking bone and rending flesh, like the crack and roll of concussion and the biblical cacophony surrounding us, 
I felt my mother shudder beneath many blows, her resolute stride faltering, golden blood pattering down to flood my winged cocoon. And then, as suddenly as it had all begun, it was over. The citizens of Angleton were no more, reduced to macerated piles of gold-streaked feathers by the rageful might of heaven and hell combined for daring to exist outside of either paradigm. But my existence was forgotten. I was not truly part of either world. And so, when the bodies turned to white ash with the rising sun, the hosts of dark and light had long since gone, leaving me to stumble through the empty, smut-covered fields where Angleton had once stood. I was found many days later, dehydrated and delirious, by a farmer driving into the next town over. Bundled with a blanket and driven to the police station, I sat with a can of Coca-Cola in the sheriff's office, trying to explain what had happened to me. Of course, I was assumed to be gravely ill, both mentally and physically. So I was taken to the city hospital and dosed with a cornucopia of modern pharmaceuticals until a kind of foggy equilibrium emerged inside my tortured mind. It was strange when I was well enough to talk to other patients, visitors. Some people claimed they had heard of Angleton, but they couldn't tell me where it was, when they'd visited it, or even hold that thread of a conversation for more than a minute. As far as I could fathom, I was the only person who could remember anything about the place. And as my time in the psychiatric ward lengthened from weeks to months, I began to forget it too. I've been back there, to the place where it should be. I've traced the boundaries on the maps, but found only acres of farmland, all accounted for, all owned by ordinary people. It is as though the fabric of the earth itself pulled tight to fill the void where my town had been, erasing it completely. It was a place that shouldn't have existed. A relic of the war in heaven, I think. A hidden place created by the pacifists among the angels, lost to the eyes of God and his brood. Somewhere even angels could try to just exist. But it was all undone by that one angel who wanted, needed to be more human than the others. That one angel who snatched the child of a delivery driver, who told the rest of the town that she had birthed a miracle, sparking vigor and hope in lifeless and dreary people, reinvigorating a dead town. But I am no miracle. I find little peace in this life, even knowing without a doubt that heaven and hell are real. I don't know which of those two realms will be my final resting place. I don't know which I will deserve. But wherever my soul is bound, I do know that I will spend the rest of eternity surrounded by the creatures that murdered my mother, 
the one being in this terrifying existence who truly loved me, although it cost her more than anyone could ever imagine. These days, we have apps to keep us informed about storms coming our way. We don't need to wait to see the dark clouds on the horizon. But in this tale, shared with us by author Davin Ireland, we meet some residents of a town preparing for a different kind of storm, one no app can prepare you for. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett and Mick Wingert. So if you know this one is coming, you'd better be ready and, dare I say, fully braced. It's the only way to make it when what's coming is something bad. I'll tell you this. Something bad was coming to Ardenville. The people of the town felt it in the air that grayed the skies above its factories and fields, and in the swirling clouds of grit that blew the length of its baking summer streets. They felt it in living rooms where children stared blank-eyed at darkened TV screens, at the intersection of Partridge and Fifth where the corner girls plied their timeless trade, in parks and malls that had shut down early for the day. Mama Zorowski felt it more than most. She sat on the walk-up of her crumbling second-hand clothes store on Denver Avenue, smoking one cigarette after another, a taste like old pennies at the back of her throat. Gonna be a bad one this year, she decided, wincing as a loose page from one of the dailies floated past on the strengthening breeze. Mama knew from experience that the final days of summer in Ardenville could be a bitch. Only this year, the bitch had teeth. What she wouldn't do for a fast car and someplace nice to go. There were plenty of people who shared that sentiment. Those of us old enough to remember the last time such heat descended on the town weren't looking forward to more of the same. Take old Ned Dyson. When I dropped off the mail at Ned's place that morning, he was already out in the front yard lurking below the hedge line with a pair of shears in hand and acting for all the world like a trespasser on his own property. Lou! He popped up in my sight line and snapped the blades at a stray leaf. You just about surprised the hell out of me! The smile that accompanied this statement was sheepish enough for me not to call him a goddamn liar, which is exactly what he was. We both knew the old coot had been waiting on me since before sunrise. Morning to you, Ned, I told him, affecting the same glib attitude I always do around this time of year. All ready for the big one? Oh, just a few last-minute adjustments. Nothing I can't handle. He angled a glance at the boarded-over windows of his front porch, the door with the reinforced frame, 
the extra coat of fire-retardant paint we'd slapped on the previous weekend. Close by, his old BB gun rested comfortably in the shade of the drinks cooler. I'd still like some help if you can spare it, though. Drink? And when I'm done with these... I padded the three-quarter full mailbag slung across my back. Uh, but uh, I appreciate the offer. Well, that's what I said. If truth be told, Ned's been fixing his own lemonade from the recipe his late wife left him a couple years back, and though I hate to speak ill of the living or the dead at a time like this, I swear to God the stuff tastes more like horse piss every time I drink it. And that's with the extra sugar added. Anyway, after spotting the catapult and the well-stuffed pouch of marbles resting on top of Ned's mailbox, the old coot always did have a sense of humor. I contemplated the scene developing across the road. There weren't that many of them gathered over there yet. Drifters, thieves, winos, crackheads, maybe a couple of underage hookers thrown in for good measure. If past experience is anything to go by, their numbers would swell as the day progressed. And with them, the nature of the disturbances. <sighs> it doesn't matter. The names change from year to year, but the inexorable need to congregate on the steps of Ardenville Public Library on Labor Day remains as strong now as it ever was. It's a relative thing. You spend your life ridden with shame and self-loathing in the midst of such a hard-working, God-fearing community as this. It must be kind of nice to visit a place where the streets run vile with darkness and corruption for a few short hours each year. Helps take the pressure off, I guess. Uh, pity they'll never see any of it. Ned, who'd been wound tighter than a carriage clock for most of the week, was too busy to take any notice. What you mumbling down there, Lou? Ian exchanged his shears for a ladder and was clamoring steadily towards the weather-beaten star-spangled banner that's been flapping from the roof of his porch ever since that awful day back in September of 2001. I swear to Christ, he'll kill himself bringing that flag down one of these days. I said to make sure you're being careful up there. I felt my heart flip like an undercooked pancake when his foot missed a rung and dangled in free air for what seemed like an age. I knew right then that this wasn't going to be our day. And a second or two later, I was proved right. Before Ned could steady himself, an abrasive squeal issued from the direction of the library. For the briefest moment, I thought the expulsion had started early. And apparently, so did my friend. He tottered uncertainly onto his stumpy old legs, flagpole in hand, the stars and stripes flowing gracefully about his head and shoulders in the early morning breeze. Losing your balance at Ned's age is one thing. Losing it when you're temporarily blinded and 15 feet off the ground is another proposition. Convinced this could only end badly, I dropped my mailbag and barged through the front gate, knowing only too well that if anything happened to Ned Dyson on today of all days, plenty of people would suffer the consequences. It didn't come to that, by some bizarre quirk of fate, or maybe it was plain old dumb luck, I don't know. Ned regained his balance and descended the ladder, cussing and wheezing like he always does, but still holding on to that damn flagpole. Once he was all the way down, 
We contemplated the source of the interruption together. Must be on account of that inferno over at the tire factory last year. Ned scowled at a point just above the dust-whitened elms. I had to agree with that. A year ago to the day, a company that manufactured and tested wet-weather tires for the Japanese motorcycle industry was razed to the ground by what the insurance people like to call a fire of unknown origin. Folk had been preparing for the next one ever since, and if things didn't speed up over at the library pretty soon, I knew just where it'd be. Uh, still, you'd have thought they'd have gotten around to it before now, I added, and for the first time wondered just how bad this year's expulsion was going to be. The thing that had gained our attention was a pair of workmen suspended on one of those winched platform window cleaners used to get at the glass on really tall buildings. They were screwing steel shutters to window frames across the entire width of the library's second floor. And boy, were they in a hurry. The petulant squeal was the sound of the platform's winch working overtime every time it relocated to the next window along. Below the platform, two dozen gray-faced indigents stirred, but failed to raise a protest. There'd be another two dozen of them by noon, and maybe as many again an hour later. By that time, of course, they'd have a whole lot more to complain about. The library wouldn't get as much as a look-in. And they might break the record, too, while they're at it. After taking a moment to digest this, Ned scooped the catapult from the mailbox and slotted it into his shirt pocket. With the other hand, he retrieved the pouch of marbles and hefted it experimentally. In that case, you better get that mail route over with. Gonna be awful busy around here soon, and I don't want to be left hanging around when it matters. <sighs> Keep your hair on. I retrieved my mailbag from the sidewalk. Some of us still had day jobs to contend with impending catastrophe or no. Hamsin, Mistral, the Santa Ana Winds. Different people use different names, though it really all comes down to the same thing. A hot desert wind that blows up out of nowhere. But we don't get many of them in this neck of the woods. And when we do, people don't take a whole lot of notice. In the regulated, sanitized, air-conditioned environment we call the United States, a fair percentage of the population still refuses to consider the elements as something to be feared. I just don't understand that. When you're on the wrong side of 60 and have lived your entire life in Ardenville, you fear plenty, and with good reason. This year's demonstration of why must have started proper around 11 o'clock that morning just as I was entering Gilligan's Hardware with my final batch of mail. The experience isn't easy to describe. It's as if the air thins out and heats up all at the same time, causing you to pant instead of breathe easily. Pretty soon, you've got your eyes closed and your head bent into a wind that feels like it's blowing straight out of a convection oven. Superheated gusts buffet you from one side of the street to the other, stealing your balance and threatening to put you on your can at every turn. It must have caught me off guard at least once, because as I turned into Gilligan's, I blundered straight into some fella standing idly in the doorway. 
I was about to give him a piece of my mind when I noticed he wasn't alone. There were five or six of them all wedged in there together and they were doing more than just standing. They were lining up. Only not to return that air conditioning unit they rented back at the end of June or to buy a new rake in advance of the fall. No siree. They were there for one reason and one reason only. Tools to fight the expulsion with. The belated acquisition thereof. I couldn't say much to that, so I shouldered my way to the counter and passed Herb Gilligan his letters. Herb managed a harried grin, but it was a close-run thing. He had a young family to think about, and a handful of flyers and periodicals delivered by yours truly was hardly competition. Things started moving a little quicker after that. Cars streaked from one end of Maine to the other, tires barking, Horns honking, headlights on full blast. The stores emptied soon after. Scuffles broke out on the sidewalk. I was relieved to be near the tail end of my route instead of somewhere in the middle. Otherwise, I might not have made it at all. And then, just like that, everything deteriorated. Different folks sense it in different ways. Although everybody feels something. And what we were feeling right about then was the expulsion bearing down on us ahead of schedule. The time had come for everybody still on the street to get the hell off the street and right quick. A tortured, moaning filtering between the buildings confirmed this beyond any doubt. Even people who hear that strange noise for the first time rarely mistake it for a moaning sound. This isn't like moaning. It is moaning. And the whole town resonates with it the way a bell vibrates long after being struck by a hammer. Good thing, too. Maine was emptying out by the time I turned back onto Denver Avenue. Security screens descended on businesses that were hastily shutting up shop for the day. I waved to Mama Zorowski who raised a hand in return before slipping inside her second-hand clothes store. The first dark portents revealed themselves in her absence. Telephone wires whipsawed in the wind, twanging like out-of-tune piano wires. The sky darkened in rapid stages to the color of bruised fruit, and although I've been trying my damnedest to forget it ever since, I swear to God... A stray dog standing beneath the awning of an ice cream parlor not 50 feet from me just collapsed where it stood, stone dead. I began to get frightened after that. Really frightened. Emergency services are scarce around these parts at the best of times, and the nearest sheriff is 20 miles to the west of here. The last time I saw Charlie Kinright out this way, it was to pick up a teenage runaway from his own patch and he didn't hang around for too long even then. Ned semaphored me from his front yard as I labored up Denver Avenue, with my empty satchel slung over one shoulder, and my lungs heaving under their burden of baking, dust-laden air. He looked about as flustered as I felt. I didn't blame the poor guy one bit. The change had come over Ardenville a lot quicker than in previous years. We were all playing catch-up at a time we should have been erecting our defenses. Clouds of dust blew in from the plains with growing intensity, 
piling little drifts against the curbsides and the bases of walls. Screen doors crashed. Children cried. And just about everything that wasn't nailed down, tarps, garden umbrellas, even a hand-lettered sign advertising a September yard sale, floated away over the rooftops and out of sight. Louis Jardell, where the jumped-up Jesus Christ you been? You unreliable old coot! You were supposed to be here at lunchtime! Lunch ain't for a half hour yet. <clears throat> but my words were drowned by the escalating roar. I could tell by the look on Ned's face that the power was already off. Even if he could have gotten that old wireless of his to work, all we'd get it be static. Right across the dial. Tossing my bag into the crawl space beneath the house, I joined my friend on the porch from where we both stared out at the horizon. It looked like nothing at all, really. A puff of dust floating above the skyline, the kind of fantail a jeep throws up in its wake. Only it was traveling too fast for that. And it was growing, expanding in all directions like a miniature mushroom cloud. I only watched it for a little while. That burgeoning crowd of no-hopers on the library steps had swollen to maybe 80 or 90 souls by that time. And although they didn't know it yet, they were in mortal danger. Restless and jumpy, they milled back and forth in the dust-darkening street, probably still unsure what they were waiting for or why, but driven by some ungovernable, malignant need. We had work to do. Uh, this could turn nasty in a hurry, I observed and loosened my tie. Ned didn't have anything to say to that, so we descended the steps to the front lawn where we donned plastic goggles and paper dust masks in preparation for the task ahead. I reckon I'm about as ready as I'm ever gonna be! The wind snapped at his words like a hungry dog. He was practically screaming, so I grabbed the catapult and installed myself behind the hedge. After coughing into his fist a few times, Ned unshouldered his air rifle and joined me. Since parting company this morning, he'd used those old shears of his to snip two vertical gashes into his laurel hedge, gashes that resembled arrow slits in the battlements of an old castle. From back here, we could launch our assault without fear of discovery. I was grateful for that. Better a kid with a mouthful of broken teeth on my conscience than a dead one, Ned always says. He first used that line back in 1964 when some drunken teenager standing in the back of a Camaro refused to budge, even with the full weight of the expulsion bearing down on him. Not being a complete fool, Ned realized he'd only get one shot at saving the kid's life, so he made it count. Well, young Mr. Hot Rod, his real name was Randy Kessler, but nobody mentions that anymore, ended up losing an eye as a consequence and poor old Ned Dyson finished the day behind bars over in Grover County. Although the case for the prosecution lasted about as long as it took for Charlie Kenwright's paw, who was the chief of police back then, to interview his first witness. So, it's happened before, and it'll happen again. Which is more or less why me and old Ned didn't stand on ceremony. We both just let rip with what we had, 
Not bothering to wait until the first volley hit home, we simply reloaded and fired again, and again, and again. Lead pellets and glass marbles cracked off the library steps, pinged off those newly installed metal shutters, trashed the windshield of a nearby car. I won't say we took a whole lot of notice. One year's mayhem ain't much different than another's, and when you've got a seething mass of primordial rage bearing down on you, details get lost in the mix. I remember a girl in a suede skirt and broken-heeled pumps frantically rubbing her upper arm, a sallow-faced biker clutching at his neck and howling in agony, but then I got distracted. The expulsion was so close now that it loomed over the intersection of Maine and Denver like a wrathful god. And for a moment there, I nearly lost my nerve. I still don't know how I managed to hold it long enough to warn Ned that the game was up, but I did. With the full force of the dust storm whipping my hair and collars every which way, I screamed his name above the bellowing of the wind. He responded by emptying a sack full of cherry bombs onto the lawn and signaling me to lend a hand. I went against my better judgment and did what I was told. The resulting explosions finally got the stragglers moving, but only just. Been holding these babies back since the 4th of July! Kinda had a feeling they'd come in handy! By the time he finished relaying this, we were across the porch and into his parlor. After that, the world went into overdrive. We heaved the door shut and barricaded it with furniture. The goggles we exchanged for polarized sunglasses, as the last vestiges of the crowd headed for the shelter of alleyways, dumpsters, and shop doorways, we slapped on high-factor suntan lotion and crowded around the one window in the entire street that wasn't boarded over. There was a reason for that, and the reason was Ned's late wife. Just before Nancy died, which wasn't all that long after she'd given her husband the secret recipe for that god-awful lemonade we keep drinking, she admitted that her one great regret in life was never having seen the expulsion up close. When Ned told her hush with the crazy talk, she offered him a wan smile and pointed out in the politest of tones that this was her deathbed and she'd say whatever she damn well pleased. Well, we lost Nancy not long after that. Exactly how long, I don't recall. What I do know is that by the time she went, there was no mistaking the look on Ned's face. It took him a couple more months to work up the nerve, but I knew he'd get there in the end. So when he came to me in the late spring of that year and told me he was going to look the expulsion right in the eye, just as he'd promised, I flashed on Nancy's withered form curled up on that hospital bed and swore I'd be right there next to him, which is exactly where I was. Naturally, the window in front of us wasn't any old window. It was fitted with an extra pane of smoked glass to cut down on the glare, for one thing. An old canvas sack had been nailed to the inside frame for much the same reason. Finally, with the exception of two tiny peepholes situated at head height, one for me, one for Ned, the glass was emulsioned over. It was crude and hastily constructed, and about as far removed from government standard as you can get. But with our shades on and the sunblock liberally slathered over our skin, we figured we'd be okay. Which was more than could be said for whoever might be left standing out in the open. 
Everything beyond the front gate floated in a lake of soupy yellow fog. Trees shook, birds fell from the skies, chimney pots hooted in protest at the debris-ridden gale. And then, there it was, floating right in front of the house, the biggest, blackest cloud of depression in Earth's history, an airborne tumor metastasizing on the four winds, the specter of mortality, the harbinger of death. The hairs on the back of my neck didn't so much stand up as writhe around like worms on a hot plate. All of the hate and the cruelty in the world, all of the guilt and the regret, the sorrow, sadness, revulsion, and disgust, all of the callous indifference to the suffering of others, every last bit of selfishness, ire, and cruelty that still resided in the human heart was compacted together in one pulsating cloud of supercharged bad feeling. Because that's all the expulsion really is. Negative human emotion released at the time of passing. Turns out that feelings such as jealousy, bitterness, and shame don't stay buried in our hearts forever or fade away when we die. No, they have to go somewhere to be expelled properly. And good old Ardenville just happens to be that place. A blinding flash of light issued from the street followed by a groan as deep and resonant as that made by tectonic plates grinding together beneath the ocean floor. Blue tendrils of electricity wiggled across the pavement, crisping the weeds that grew between the cracks in the flagstones and blistering the whitewash on a nearby picket fence. Then, the screaming started. The screaming of whatever was caught up inside that indignant, seething cloud. Me and Ned pulled back straight off, but it was too late. We'd peered into the polluted core of the expulsion and seen what resided there. And now, the memory would stay with us forever. Another scream cut the air. Only this one was immediate and more real. So help me God, I put my eye to that hole again and experienced what no man should experience in a thousand lifetimes. The kid could have been no older than Randy Kessler when he lost that eye, and judging by the open door of the station wagon parked across the road, he'd either been hiding in the back or sleeping off a hangover since before the sun came up. Now, he crawled on all fours towards the gutter on our side of the street, hair standing on end, head bowed like some eyeless beetle feeling its way across a cave floor. I could tell right away that he wasn't going to make it. Above him, the expanding cloud of filth boiled with the faces of those that had passed over the course of the previous year. Sixty million of them on average, and they were all there. No exceptions. Sixty million pairs of eyes foamed skywards and earthwards and outwards like bubbles on a raging surf. Sixty million mouths yawned wide in an agonized scream. Sixty million hearts yammered with fear and anxiety. Teeth snapped, nostrils flared, voices begged and chattered. And the boy, the teenager crawling into the shadow of the elm nearest the house, 
had just enough time to look up at me. Right at me. Before the awesome power of the expulsion unleashed itself upon him. It was like watching a cartoon character zapped with high-voltage electricity. I saw his skeleton clearly delineated beneath his skin before the flesh disintegrated and fell away from the bones. For a moment, that exposed skeleton knelt in the gutter like an exhibit in a museum. Then, with no tendons or connective tissue to hold it together, it collapsed into the gutter. That's when I pulled back from the window, face blasted crimson from the heat I was later to find out. I suffered from blisters and running sores for weeks after that. I think I must have stumbled and fallen backward over the couch about then because the next thing I knew, I was lying flat on my back and staring at the wall as two bright streams of light, light emitted by those eye-level peepholes of ours, burned twin lights of soot into the wallpaper across the room. Well, if I'd been a younger man, I may have flipped over to get a look at where the source of that light was headed. But that part of the story, I already knew. The expulsion was heading for the upper stratosphere, where it would disperse like so much summer mist. So, instead, I took a peek at Ned. He looked to be in a bad way, seated at the table and rubbing his eyes with the heel of his palms he looked lost. It made sense. The poor guy had taken the brunt of the initial flash full in the face and the force of it had temporarily blinded him. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I almost envied him for that. After all, he could have had the negative images of 60 million tormented souls scorched into his retinas. Not to mention his own wife's tormented, screaming face. Instead, I was the one burdened with that hellish afterimage. And it plagued my mind even after the world grayed out around me. And I fainted. It usually takes the townsfolk, even the older ones who've seen it, or most of it, all before, about an hour to emerge from their fortified homes and businesses. Most of them just stand around blinking uncertainly in the afternoon light, like sleepers emerging from dreams that remain blessedly out of reach upon waking. By then, the emergency services are usually on their way in from Grover County. Ten to one, the heat from the expulsion has set off a brush fire somewhere or ignited somebody's trash, and it's best to get these things dealt with immediately. Today was no exception. After making brave old Ned as comfortable as I could on that break-back couch of his, I grabbed a dustpan and brush and an empty box from the pantry and nipped outside. The air still reeked of ozone and adrenaline and carbonized human flesh. All around me a ring of singed leaves, melted tires, and scorched asphalt showed there was work to be done. But almost all of my attention was drawn to an elongated heap of bones and ash that lay in a diagonal across the gutter. Once upon a time, that heap had a name, and a family, and maybe even a steady girl. 
Now, it was nothing more than a pile of smoking cinders. It was sickening. I don't mind admitting I shed a tear or two as I swept the charred remains into the dustpan and deposited it into a box. Not because I felt bad for the kid. I was so numb from shock that I scarcely felt the pain radiating from my own roasted flesh, let alone sympathy for my fellow man. But because of what I had seen at the epicenter of the storm, granted, it was ugly. Yet in a strange way, it was beautiful, too. Because it was us. It was ours. And as separate and dividing as we have become as a species, and will probably remain till the end of days, in that one awful moment we were united, if only to wallow in shared misery and regret. Still reeling, I knocked the brush out on the nearest curb and went inside to fix myself and Ned a glass of that shitty tasting lemonade. I think I must have experienced a rare moment of insight about then, what the educated folk call an epiphany. Nancy hadn't played a trick on us or written the recipe down wrong at all. The reason the lemonade tasted so bitter was because she wasn't there to share it with us, and no amount of sugar was going to solve that. We were just going to have to get used to drinking it on our own. <sighs> Who knows, I told myself. Well, with all the fuss, maybe we'll switch to Kool-Aid next year. Which is exactly what we plan to do. There are some towns out there that feel like they haven't changed in decades. The buildings stay the same, and the townsfolk rarely come or go. It's all just the same. But in this tale, shared with us by author Charlie Davenport, we meet a young woman with a new stepfather, and he's keen to learn more about the town's local cemetery. I join Lindsay Russo, Atticus Jackson, and Sarah Thomas in performing this tale, so, if folks don't much want to talk about it, you'd best take the hint. Maybe you shouldn't concern yourself with the old plot. Dishwasher repair was how John Sully O'Sullivan came to be living in the house across from the old plot. I was only 10 years old when he arrived to fix that appliance, which after years of misuse had finally begun to protest by spewing water onto the kitchen linoleum. I was barely 11 when he married Ma in the backyard. She had a habit of trying to tie traveling men down. Cowboy, carny, or repairman. If you were in town for six days or less, Carol Newmeyer was going to try and get you to stick around. The locals treated things like the weather report or the dump hours as insider information. 
but unlike most of Ma's other fellas, folks around here like Sully. He had an easy way with people, his patter honed by years of making chit-chat lying on people's floors while he fixed their various odds and ends. Even my grandfather, who resisted giving out directions to lost tourists in all but the direst of situations, found himself quickly warming to Ma's latest out-of-towner. Sully took to being a stepdad pretty well, too. He was thrilled to teach me every skill he'd picked up in his life. In the year he'd been with us, he showed me everything from close-up magic to basic appliance repair to, maybe most surprisingly, photography. Sunsets were his absolute favorite subject, and our porch offered probably the best view of one in town. Sometimes, between the clicks of the lens, he'd look down at me and say something like, Bernie, there'll never be another one like it. Sully had taken to calling me out there with him most days. He'd pull out his homemade camera, scrounged from parts that he'd forced together into a working hole, to capture each day's end. He waxed on about things like f-stop, shutter speed, and the importance of breath control. These were all critical in the days before digital became commonplace and created the chance that you'd find a single decent shot among the hundreds you could take. There was something about that, the care and craftsmanship required to do it well, that spoke to me. But it would be years before I could put the feeling into words like that. The reason you want to shoot at F8 is to get a good depth of field. What's that? I asked, trying to absorb everything. Not only about what he said, but about his posture and bearing as he held his camera. It's how much is in focus from the nearest to the farthest. Good photos have an interesting foreground, middle ground, and background. If you got that... He gestured out to the graveyard in front of us, the cold stones rendered warm by the yellows, oranges, and reds of what Sully called the golden hour. You want to be able to see it all. F8 makes sure you do. The plot sat in the dead center of the commons, a thousand slate and sandstone graves, right in the middle of what passed for hustle and bustle in our small town. The names of our forefathers had been carved by someone who had also gone on to their own final reward. Simple epitaphs of loving son, devoted wife, and father. In the center, towering above those simple stones stood a granite obelisk with only the word mother clearly remaining on it. The other letters had been faded to obscurity by 300 odd years of winters and wind. I think it was that mystery that caught Sully's eye and drew him back night after night. I remember once sitting out on the porch with him and grandpa, Sully's camera in his hand, a glass of brown liquor on the rocks and the old man's as they chatted. What are the Hendersons growing in that new greenhouse, you think? You hear what Jimmy and Caveman were fighting about at the wheelhouse last Friday? Of course it was Brenda. She won't give those damn fools the time of day, but get some booze in them. John DeMarco's fence needs fixing. You okay to go over there to help him out? Hey, who's buried under there? In the long silence that followed as my grandfather stared straight ahead, Sully clarified that he was asking about the stone monument. You know, the tall one. All that could be heard was the clink of Grandpa's ice against his glass as he finished his drink and headed back inside without another word spoken. I say the wrong thing? Sometimes I'd come downstairs on a weekend, the light of the coming day still dim, and I'd see him out front by the porch's screen door, 
the coffee cup loosely held in one spade-like hand, his camera hanging from a strap around his neck. He'd be staring at the plot, watching the sun come up over the old headstones of the early settlers. One morning, I was pouring myself a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios, planning to catch an episode of Davy and Goliath before the chore started when he asked, Hey, Bernie, how come you never play with those kids over there? His coffee hadn't had time to kick in properly, so I don't think he noticed that I'd frozen stock still in my spot on the living room carpet. My spoon, chock full, hung motionless above my bowl. I think they're headed to the playground or something. By that point, he was standing over me. Maybe you go over there. Show him one of the tricks. His head tilted to the side as he mimed palming a coin and eyebrow raised. I shoved the postponed spoonful into my mouth and around the soupy mess I said, Show's on! His eyes drifted up towards the blank TV screen. In its reflection, I saw a look of momentary confusion set on his face. Okay. He walked out of the room, a disappointed, nonchalant shrug pulling across his shoulders. I ran to the porch, closing it as quietly as I could, not daring to look out of it as I did. That night I heard him, thrashing around, his deep donkey bray of a snore cut off by panicky gasps for breath. The floorboards had creaked as he came down the hallway, and I waited for him. My door scraped open, and his face displayed just the barest hint of surprise at finding me awake. Couldn't sleep either? He sat at the foot of my bed, giving out a hearty rasp in protest. He sat there for the longest time, his head turning from one side to the other as he shifted on the bed, as though at any moment he might catch sight of the thing he'd come in for. The book, the tool, the set of keys he'd gotten up to fetch. He'd see it, and his world would make sense again. I said nothing, and just waited for him to come to it when he was ready. Finally, his voice distant and dry, he asked, Did your mom ever teach you how to swim? I said she hadn't, and Sully nodded, as though this had been exactly what he'd expected. Mine did. He nodded again as though I required this confirmation, He swung his arms in a lazy windmill. Every stroke, she called. Big arms. Do big arms, Johnny. She called me Johnny. Wouldn't make any sense if she called me Sully, right? I nodded. After a time, he spoke again. I think I was swimming over there. I mean, I was dreaming I was swimming over there. Kind of like Bugs Bunny in the dirt. He shuddered, then, rattling the frame of my bed, and the sounds seemed to bring my stepfather back to himself. His eyes fell on the phosphorus green hands on the clock by my nightstand. Oh, God. Is that the time? He brought his big hands up to his face and scraped them across his eyes. You got school in the morning, right? He rose before I could tell him that tomorrow was Saturday. He told me to go back to sleep as he closed my door behind him. I listened to him head downstairs to the kitchen. When I was certain he was gone, I reached over and flicked on my lamp. His muddy footprints were already drying on my floor. Clumps of gummy dirt had gathered from where he'd sat down on my bedspring, the moisture soaking through the sheets below. A few weeks went by, and one night, Ma sent me down to the makeshift darkroom Sully had made for himself in our dirt floor basement to get him for dinner. 
The smell of the developing chemicals hit my nose like a pungent iodine and curses echoed off the bricks as his efforts revealed nothing but another blank square. He was already coming up the stairs past me, the aborted photos in his hands still slick with their sheen. Would you look at this? Can't figure out what I'm doing wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. Ma was engrossed in her Reader's Digest as she waited for the family to gather. She didn't even look up. It went on this way for a while until I woke up early one Friday morning, the sun hours from making its appearance, to the sound of the screen door banging shut. My feet hit the floor before I even knew what I was doing. I flew down the stairs, thinking that maybe I could catch him before he made it across the street, and if I could do that... By the time I made it to the porch... He was just passing out of the last circle of light thrown off the street lamp, barefoot and wearing only his boxers. Sully! I hissed out into the early morning air, not daring to raise my voice above a whisper. If he heard, he gave no sign of it as he disappeared into the blackness. I found my feet carrying me onto the church's property, and as soon as they touched the deep green grass, a chill washed over me. It was like stepping into the walk-in freezer at the back of McCormick's general store. Sully! My breath steamed against the cold, trying to find him among the tombs. Slowly, I became aware of the pale, squamous faces leering out from behind the headstones. At first, just a few, resembling nothing like the men and women their epithets suggested they'd once been. There were no patriots, no loving sons or devoted wives resting there just an ever-growing number of feral things slinking close to the well-tended lawn, hurling their voices at me as I scampered past. What are you doing here? The gathering mass demanded in their strange but familiar droning. You are local and should know better. I ran past them and saw the obelisk looming up from disquieted soil, as if it had erupted moments before my arrival. Despite the cold, I was overwhelmed by a damp and peaty smell of rot. Sully was there, his back to the monument, with the rigid posture of a guard, even as his body quivered. If he recognized me, nothing in his eyes, large and vacant, gave any sign. Behind him, leaning down from atop the pillar, was a hunched and naked figure. Every inch of her body was crisscrossed with open, deep avulsions, the wear of a life that long ago was supposed to be over, savaging the frame that refused to join the soil. She draped an ashen arm comfortably around my stepfather's neck, drawing him in closer until his bare back was pressed against the stone that bore her name. She buried her head, bulbous and waxen, against the side of his face. Her tongue, the tubular segmented thing, lulled against his ear, flicking teasingly, Something seemed to return to Sully's eyes then, some essential part of him sliding back into the driver's seat, and he saw me there. Bernie. He reached out his big old hand towards me, then the tongue thrust inside with a bone-cracking crunch and sent a scream rushing up Sully's throat. With a deep and unanimous growl, her children rushed past me and fell on the man that had taught me how to capture a sunset. I ran then ran back to the world outside that place, the world where streetlights burned in the night. The front door was still unlocked, and I plowed through it and thundered up the stairs, diving for the limited protections my own bed might offer. I quaked there until the morning light shone through my bedroom window. I still let out a yelp when my door swung open. Ma stood there, 
her lips drawn tight together, confusion through her eyes even as they welled with tears. What were you doing out there, Bernie? Her fists were balled tightly to her chest. She came towards me, the expression on her face a stew of anger, concern, and fear. What were you thinking? The sudden rush of grief was too big for my little chest to hold in. I wanted to keep this one. (laughs) And I cried, and she wrapped me in a hug so tight it threatened to crack my ribs. Oh, Bernadette, that's not the way it works. She gently pushed the hair away from my eyes and cradled me there, rocking back and forth. She explained this was our tradition, our responsibility, our way, how it had always been this way. She dried my tears, took me downstairs, and made me pancakes. Others came. The delivery truck driver here, a tourist coming for the fall colors there. Sometimes it was just somebody missing their exit. They'd get out to stretch their legs and met Ma or one of the other local ladies. Hardy women with sunny smiles and earthy laughs. Before long, they'd be in love and moving in. Then, the dreams. Then waking up in the middle of the night with dirt under their fingers and on the soles of their feet. Slowly seasoning them until, well, better them than us, right? Like Ma said, it had always been that way. The time marched on. The women, those that fulfilled the bargains struck by our forefathers, grew faded. Worn out by time and the toll of their duties. Their daughters, maybe seeing what lay ahead, all found other places, other lives. And the things in the plot went hungry. A couple of years ago, pets and livestock started disappearing. Then the DeMarco's youngest boy went missing. Everybody pretty much stayed inside at night now. Me? I stayed behind and took care of Ma until she passed away last winter. One of the last things she ever said to me was, Do you think you'll ever find a man? And then she let out a hollow, bitter laugh. The next morning she was gone. Her skin was already turning that familiar pale gray. A couple of weeks after, I was in the attic, just looking for some papers I needed to settle her affairs, and I found Sully's camera. I hadn't seen it in years. It was just sitting on top of the filing cabinet like it'd been there the whole time, a thick layer of dust coating it. I've been sitting out on the porch with it most evenings, just as the sun sets. I find looking through the lens, adjusting it until everything comes into focus, calms me even as the darkness settles in for another night and their vague, feral shapes rise up, slowly filling the depth of field between them and me. In our final tale, we meet a pair of friends. They both work for the town's emergency services, and they both, well, let's just say they're both members of a local group. And in this tale, shared with us by author Stephanie Schism, 
The pair begin a quest for answers after a tragic event, and they'll start as soon as they attend the execution of the woman's husband. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Aaron Lillis, Matthew Bradford, Nicole Doolin, Dan Zapula, Mary Murphy, Kyle Akers, Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, Nicole Goodnight, Ellie Hirschman, Sarah Thomas, Kristen DiMercurio, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. So if you need to find answers to your questions, make sure you have time to wait. In this case, it's going to be a long December. in the snow, covered in someone else's blood. It pooled beneath the boy, turning the pristine white to crimson. As I approached, she glanced up and gave an almost imperceptible shake of her head. Her eyes glistened and her cheeks flushed red, but whether from tears or the biting wind, I wasn't sure. The twisted remains of the teenager's motorcycle lay scattered for at least fifty feet. His helmet rested beside a chipped grey birdbath. Am I... Am I gonna be okay? The answer was no. Even I could see that. His... Breathing was labored with asymmetrical chest expansion, his pupils blown. He was circling the terrain on the verge of coding. Ray took his hand. I could tell she was wrestling with an answer. Don't, don't leave me. I'm not going anywhere. What's your name? Another paramedic worked silently beside her, but the boy's eyes were locked on Ray. I'm, I'm thirsty. I know. How old are you, Tyler? Fifteen. Mom's gonna be so mad. Tell her. Tell her I'm sorry. He wheezed out something else just before he coded, but I couldn't hear it over the howling wind. God damn it! She jumped up. Wild-eyed, she scanned the yard in a slow circle, and then she ran. I chased after her. Not sure what was happening. And then I saw it. A little arm with bubblegum pink fingernails protruding from the shrubs. Even though her helmet had been properly strapped, the girl's chest had been crushed on impact with the utility pole. His sister... I need another transport, DOA. He asked if his sister was okay. God 
goddamn kids. I followed them to the hospital in my police cruiser, and when the mother rushed in, still in her waitress uniform, I delivered the news that both her children were gone. When she started screaming, Ray got up and walked outside. I waited until a family member arrived, then slipped outside to check on Ray. She sat on the steps by the parking area, half hidden by the bushes. She smoked a cigarette as I approached and discreetly held a conversation with no one that I could see. You have to go. Follow your grandpa. It'll be alright. Her gift still unnerved me. I assumed she was talking to the boy from the accident, so I hung back, not wanting to interrupt, but apparently the conversation was over because she looked at me. Helen's making chili tonight. She said to tell you to drop by. That was where we'd first met, at Helen's house, when I first moved to Tennessee and was invited to join the coven. Ray stubbed out her cigarette on the concrete and pocketed the butt. What are you doing this weekend? <laughs> I'll give you $500 to just set it on fire. I know you're not talking about Fred. Who names their truck Fred, anyway? That's like naming your cat Chad. So much hate when I did all the dirty work. I seem to recall that I changed the transmission. You just held the light. I'll give you that. You are the best mechanic in town. When you grow up poor, you learn to fix things. Not true. I grew up poor, and I can't fix shit. But anyway, it's, it's not Fred this time. Um, I was wondering if you'd go on a road trip with me. To Florida? Please say Florida. The state of Missouri has invited me to attend my husband's execution. I think I want to go, but I don't think I can do it alone. I blinked. I'd known her for over a year now and had no idea she was married, much less to a man on death row. We were both ridiculously introverted, but still. Came to Tennessee to get away from all that. Come by Helen's and we'll talk then. At home, I took the hottest shower I could, trying to wash off the cold misery of the shift. But I was too keyed up to nap, so I opened my laptop. It wasn't hard to find Ray's husband, even without knowing his name. There was only one execution set in Missouri for December. The bearded blonde man in the mugshot looked like he'd taken a hell of a beating. One eye was swollen shut and his lip was split. He'd been convicted of two counts of homicide. I clicked on the case details and exhaled when the first two pictures appeared. 
I didn't need to read the caption to know who they were. Both boys looked just like their mother. William Billy Tolliver, 21, charged in the drowning deaths of his sons, 18-month-old Curtis Tolliver and 3-year-old Corey Tolliver. I remembered this case, though I hadn't known Ray then. It had made national news at the time. Tolliver had driven a car into Lake Jericho and then swam out at the last minute, leaving his boys inside in their car seats. Tolliver had offered no explanation for his actions, simply pleading guilty and waiving all rights to a trial. At his sentencing, his wife had begged the judge to put him to death, and Tolliver had echoed her request. It had still taken the state eight years to call up his number. I pulled up the first news article. Ray was almost unrecognizable with lighter, shorter hair and makeup. Now her hair tumbled wild and dark down her back, and I'd never seen her apply so much as lip gloss. Still, she was one of the most carelessly beautiful women I'd ever met. Now I knew how strong she was, too. I thought of little else that entire day, and my thoughts were still troubled as I made my way to Helen's that night. Oh, I got that, Helen. At dinner, Ray didn't mention it, so I didn't either. She insisted on putting away the leftovers and washing the dishes, so I volunteered to rinse. Helen, thank you for supper. Could we grab a few things from the basement and greenhouse for a spell? Of course, take your time and take what you need. Just lock up when you leave. I think I'm going to carry my old bones on up to bed. She gave us each a kiss on the cheek, then left us alone in the kitchen. What kind of spell are you doing? I know you probably researched the case today. It's all right, I would have too. I said I would never go back there, but I feel like I owe it to my sons. I can understand that. Of course I'll go with you. It's more than just seeing him executed. I need your help with something. Billy's asked to talk to me. And... I want to do a truth spell on him. I want to know why he did it. Ray, I... I don't know if that's a good idea. I mean, they were just babies. There is nothing he can say to justify what he did. And a lot of things he could say that would just hurt you. I don't think a truth spell will give you closure. You don't understand. He never told me why... We were going through a rough patch, but it wasn't that bad, you know? He'd lost his job due to drinking, and he hadn't been working. I'd kicked him out, but it was intended to be more of a wake-up call than a goodbye. I just wanted him to grow up. He was staying at his brother's trailer and looking for a job. He told me he hadn't had a drink in a week. Was he drunk when it happened? No, his toxicology was absolutely clear. That's 
what kills me. I almost wish he had been, or high, then maybe I could at least blame that. I was working that night. Someone reported seeing headlights under the water. They called the recovery team in, and I was standing on the bank when they floated that car to the surface with my babies inside. His brother's place was a half mile down the road. When they said Billy wasn't in the car, but Curtis and Corey were, I just started running. I ran until I got to that trailer. The door was open and I found him sprawled across his bed, barefooted and soaking wet, sleeping like a baby. I nearly beat the hell out of him before someone pulled me off him. He didn't even try to defend himself. I need something, Abel. We were young, but he was a good dad. If he was mad at me, if it was some drug that maybe didn't show up, whatever, I need to know how he could just swim out and leave our babies to die. I nodded, even though my opinion hadn't changed. If this was what she needed, I'd support her. We arrived in Springfield around four on the day of the execution. I had offered to drive out earlier, but Ray had declined. The sooner we get out of here, the better. We showed our ID and went through the vehicle security check at Potosi Correctional Center. Why do they do executions at midnight? Well, they assign a day of death and then set the executions at midnight to allow the inmate the maximum amount of time. Ray, are you sure you want to do this? I'm sure. I used a cloaking spell to camouflage the backpack I wore over my coat. The only trouble was getting inside the visitor's room with Ray. Since I wasn't family and wasn't on Tolliver's request list, the desk officer denied me entrance. I was prepared for this, though, and blew a powder into the man's face. Uh, there is my name. I pointed at an empty line on the form. See it? Hmm. Yep, there it is. Let me print you a visitor pass. Go to the door and someone will come get you shortly. I used another powder on the guard who was to stay in the room with us. When we get inside, you will close your eyes and stand in the corner. You won't see or hear anything until I say the words, we're ready to go. Then you will take him back and forget you ever saw us. Do you understand? 
I understand. Tolliver sat at the table in shackles, waiting for us. He blinked at Ray, and then his face lit in a smile. Her expression remained a stony. Rachel, is that you? She stood, rigid fist clenched at her side. Remember what we came here for. Ray gave me a curt nod and sat. Like he'd been instructed to do, the guard stood in the corner with his eyes closed. Billy looked at him in puzzlement. What's going on? I took the chair beside Ray and extracted a poppet from the backpack that Billy couldn't see. From the look on Billy's face, it must have seemed to appear from thin air. Rachel? Ready? She nodded, and I tugged on the red string that represented the puppet's mouth. Through the mist of lies, deceit, the force of truth you must meet. Open your lips and speak it true. Say it honest is what you must do. Billy gasped and clawed at his face. His eyes bulged and he looked like he was choking. Through the mist of lies, deceit. We repeated the chant as I removed the last of the stitching from the poppet's mouth. Say it honest is what you must do. Why did you do it? Why did you kill them? I don't know. Ray shot me an angry look. It's not working. What happened that night? From the time you picked the boys up? Mom made dinner. We ate, then drove around, looking at the snow. It was late. No one was around, so we did donuts in the CVS parking lot. They were both squealing and laughing when this car spun around. He spoke easier now, though his face was still red. Truth serums could hurt if you tried to be dishonest, but Billy didn't appear to be fighting it. What then? Curtis was getting sleepy, so I figured we'd just ride around for a while. We went to the lake... It was always so pretty when it snowed, and I wanted Corey to see it. Were you drinking, or had you done any drugs? With my kids in the car? No, I would never. Then what the fuck, Billy? She leaned across the table until they were nose to nose. How did you go from showing Corey the snow to driving the car into the lake? Was there a mechanical failure, something the forensics exam on the car missed? I don't know. We were just parked there talking about when I caught that big fish last summer and I saw these lights, okay, under the water. They were so pretty, I mean, so colorful. Look, I don't know why I did it. I just threw the car in drive and hit the gas. What lights? The street lights? No, they were all colors. They lit up the water. 
That doesn't make any fucking sense, Billy. There's nothing around there other than the streetlights that would reflect light. There were. What next? We uh, bobbed in the water for a moment. Then we started to sink. You know, Corey was screaming, and he woke up Curtis, and they were both screaming. I, I rolled down my window just before it submerged, and I, I swam out. And I swam to the bank and watched it sink. Ray clocked him. A solid punch that nearly knocked him out of his chair. I jumped up and grabbed her, restraining her arms. Ray... Ray, don't do this. If he looks like he's been beaten up, it might stay the execution. You stood on the bank and you watched our babies drown. How could you do that? Rachel, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It felt like a dream, okay? Like I was moving on autopilot, but I didn't feel anything. I cannot wait to be executed, okay? Because I have lain in that cell for the last eight years wondering what happened that night or how I could do that because I, I don't know. Did you ever love them? Did you ever love me? I love them. And you. More than anything. I don't know why I did it. I hope you burn in hell. Abel, get me out of here. We're ready to go. There was something wrong with the spell. It wasn't. Maybe he has some sort of uh, undiagnosed medical condition, a uh, tumor. No, they did tests. They did so many psych evals. I just don't understand. Think, Abel. There has to be another spell. Something we can do to see what happened. What the hell did he mean about the lights? Hallucination. If there were no drugs, it has to be something medical, right? I never saw them. I've been seeing spirits since I was a kid. But I never saw my own children. I never got to say goodbye. Where do you want to go? Are you hungry? We've got some time to kill. I can't eat. But get you something if you want. Then, get back on the interstate. Head west. As much as I hate to, let's go to my mother's house. There might be something in one of my grandma's books. I didn't have an appetite either, so I followed her directions and took the westbound ramp. So, I'm not the only one with mother issues, hmm? I'm sorry to make you meet her. Please forgive me. That bad? My grandmother had the gift. And she worked at it. 
She could take out the fire, as they call it around here. Take the pain from a burn. She could do all sorts of things. I miss her. My mother, on the other hand, she wanted the gift. I don't know if it skips generations or what, but she doesn't have it. She pretends like she does. She rode grandma's reputation for a long time, but by the time I left, about all she could attract were tourists off the interstate who got $50 cold readings. She'd weasel a little information from them, tell them they had a curse on them, then try to sell them a $200 candle to remove the curse. That was the general spiel, but occasionally there were the seances. She had all these parlor tricks set up. It was really embarrassing growing up in that house. I never even told her I really could see spirits because I knew she would exploit it. Take the next exit and then make a left. expecting a seedy little shop with bead curtains and a burned-out neon sign. I glanced at Ray, but she was staring at the same building I was, dumbfounded. Madame Janine's psychic readings and cleansing spa, an elegant black and white sign read. Underneath it was a glowing green symbol that I couldn't place. The sprawling building beyond looked every bit as elegant, and even though it was a little after 6pm on a Thursday night, the parking lot was full. What the hell? I slid into a spot someone had just vacated. Ray jumped out of the car like she'd forgotten I was there and stalked toward the door. Not knowing what else to do, I followed. A pretty girl sat out front at a desk. She greeted us with a smile. Hi, do you have an appointment? No, we're walk-ins. Uh, I need to see Janine. I'm so sorry, she's completely booked tonight. I can see if our other psychic Zara can squeeze- Please tell Janine her daughter is here. Of course, wait right here. The girl jumped up and hurried down the hallway. In a moment, an elegant-looking blonde in a purple silk dress strode down the hall toward us. As she drew near, I saw the resemblance, despite the layers of makeup covering her face. I also noticed she wore a sparkling emerald necklace with the same symbol as the sign outside. I wondered what it stood for. Rachel! Hi, Mom. She held open her arms and, reluctantly, Ray embraced her. Oh, my baby girl. Let me look at you. She held Ray's hands and looked her over, then turned her smile on me. Releasing Ray's right hand, she extended hers to shake mine. My name is Janine. Abel, Godette. She flipped my hand over and studied my palm. Her blue eyes sparked interest. You 
have gifts too, I see. Where are you from? Mom, I need to see Grandma's books. Do you still keep them here? What do you need those for? Rachel never believed in any of this. It's about Billy. Can I see the books? Surely you don't mean to help him. Help him? No, I'm just, just trying to find out what really happened. I don't keep them here, but we can do a reading if you want. No, thanks. Are they at your house? Rachel, you can't mess with things like that if you're not trained. I will help you, but... Abel's trained. Just let me see the damn books, mother. I'm afraid I can't. Only family. If you'll wait... This was a waste of time. Let's just go. Janine followed us to the parking lot, but she said nothing else. Merely stood in the doorway with her arms folded as we drove away. You okay? Obviously, she wasn't. I didn't think there was anything in any book that could help her either. But whatever she wanted to do, I would do it. I... I need a drink. She directed me to a little roadside tavern a few miles away. A man sitting at the bar glanced our way and then jerked his head around to stare at Ray. Rachel, is that you? Rachel froze as he climbed off the stool, but when he opened his arms, she rushed into them. Charlie! He looked naggingly familiar, but it didn't dawn on me until she pulled back to introduce us. Charlie, this is my friend, Abel. Abel, Charlie Tolliver, Billy's brother. Hi, Abel. We shook hands, and then he motioned to the empty stools beside him. Please, please join me. I didn't think you'd come back. Ray ordered a whiskey, and I held up two fingers to the bartender. I went to see him today. That was kind of you. More than he deserves. Are you going to the execution? I don't... I don't know. <sighs> Me either. I guess I will, because even after what he's done, I don't want my brother to die alone. I thought I'd stop by here, get some fortification before I headed to the prison. I sat back as they caught up, feeling sorry for both of them. I'm glad you're here. I have something that belongs to you. They gave me Billy's personal effects a few days ago, and this was in there. I think it belonged to your grandma? He pulled out his wallet and dug out a small onyx disc on a silver chain. Ray took it, turning it over in her hands. It was for protection. I gave it to Billy to wear when he was driving a truck. 
Charlie glanced at his watch and then put some money on the bar, paying our tab. Well, I'd better go. I want to go back one last time to see him. He kissed Ray's cheek and shook my hand again. Don't come. You don't need to see that. No matter what he did, I know you loved him once. I'll be there so he isn't alone. I love you. And nice to meet you, Abel. Take care of her. After he left, Ray pulled the necklace over my head. I don't want this anymore. I want you to have it. My grandma was good with her spells. May it always protect you. Thank you. Let's get out of here. I'll drive. I want to go to the lake. Snow began to fall as we approached Lake Jericho. Ray climbed out of the car and stopped to look at a monument with her son's pictures engraved on it. People had left toys all around the base of it. She looked annoyed to see we weren't alone. A group of teenagers walked down by the waterside, speaking into a device one held in his hand. My heart sank when I realized it was a ghost box. Are there any spirits here? Would any of you like to talk to us? Ray stalked toward them, shaking off my hand when I tried to stop her. What the hell are you doing? The teenagers shrank from the fury in her voice. The one holding the box spoke first. We're just ghost hunting. We thought with all the deaths here, there might be some activity. Have some fucking respect! One of the girls pulled at the boy's sleeve. Let's just go, Jordan. Yeah, Jordan. That's a great idea. They left without protest, but something bugged me. He said all the deaths? And when they were talking, they said, would any of you like to talk to us? How many people have died here, Ray? I'm sure there have been a few others, but I don't remember any in particular. I googled Lake Jericho deaths and sucked in a breath. Ray, look at this. There have been a lot of deaths here, and most of them have been in the past eight years. Ray was hugging herself against the cutting wind, so I talked her into getting back in the car before we searched the articles. Ray started the car and cranked up the heater. A couple of suicides, a fishing accident, most notably a suburban filled with people who had come to visit the memorial. There was only one survivor. A local newspaper had interviewed him and one quote stood out to me. We were visiting the memorial. It was cold, snowing. The rest of them stayed inside the vehicle while I went to place a toy at the base of the memorial. The next thing I knew, they were racing toward the water. 
I jumped in. I tr- tried to save them, but I couldn't get the doors open. It was so cold, and there were all these lights everywhere. It was so pretty, like a Christmas tree under the water. I couldn't tell where they were coming from. His statement seemed to be dismissed as shock or some reaction to the cold water, but I remembered Billy's words. The lights? But you see this place, what could they... She gaped at something through the windshield and then hit the wipers to clear away the snowflakes so she could see. Hey, but look. What the hell is... I saw nothing other than the streetlights reflecting on the glassy black water. Before I could react, before I could do anything, Ray stomped on the gas. We raced toward Lake Jericho. Ray, stop! I tried to wrest the wheel from her. We hit the water. The car bobbed like an apple, then its nose began to dive. I tried to roll down my window, but the auto locks were already failing. Water seeped in from the floorboards. Ray sat behind the wheel, unmoving, staring in awe at something I couldn't see. Seat rests on new cars are designed to work as glass brakes in an emergency. I wrestled mine off and tried to beat on my window with it. It took me three blows to spider the glass, and I kicked it the rest of the way out. Icy water came pouring in, stealing my breath, but I managed to grab Ray's arm. She didn't resist as I fought to get us both through the window. Just as I jerked her free from the car, I... I saw the lights. All colors dazzling and hazy in the water. Then I saw something else. To my disbelief, I saw something that looked like a naked old man with a bulging, frog-like face. His skinny body and protruding belly were covered in black scales. His long beard was either engulfed in or made from algae. He reached for us with webbed hands and his eyes glowed like red-hot coals. kicked him, and he darted away, fast as a fish. Fearing I was about to yank Ray's arm out of socket, I pushed for the surface. I was so disoriented, I only hoped I was dragging her the right way, but then we broke the surface. Gasping, sputtering, I pulled her toward the shore. She wasn't breathing. Frantically, I started chest compressions. Come on, Ray, come on! Violently, she coughed up a stream of water, and I nearly collapsed in relief. Snow fell harder, almost obscuring my vision. She opened her eyes and looked at me in confusion. Em, what happened? (coughs) 
Luckily, my phone was still in my pocket. The waterproof case I'd paid a fortune for had paid off before, and it did again as I called 911. I lied to the ambulance workers, saying the gas pedal had stuck. If Ray was deemed suicidal, she could lose her license and be locked up for a psych eval. I knew she wasn't crazy, I just didn't know what I'd seen. At the hospital, I refused treatment, asking only if there was somewhere they could dry my clothes. Wearing a hospital gown and wrapped up in blankets, I stayed by Ray's bedside and called Helen. I described the creature I'd seen, and she made me hold while she looked up something in her books. Abel, I think you described a vodianoi. It's a sort of water ghoul that feeds on souls it drowns. Witches summon them to gain power. They don't occur naturally. I'm sending you some information. Are you and Ray okay? Ray shook her head at me, and I lied. Yeah, we're fine. I'll let you know more when we do. Ray refused any further treatment, and we waited undisturbed in the exam room while someone dried our clothes. The nurse told us the police would come by soon to make a report, but they were tied up with the protesters at the prison. Billy! We have to stop the execution! I glanced at my phone and then showed it to her. The time read 12.10. No! It was too late. Ray sobbed and I pulled her close. Let's find out what this thing is and then we can kill it. I opened the file Helen had emailed and read aloud. In Slavic mythology, a Vodjanoi is an evil water spirit that delights in drowning humans. He is said to drag their souls to his underwater dwelling to keep his trophies. That's why I never saw my boys this thing as their souls! This source says it stores the souls of the drowned in porcelain teapots in its underwater dwelling. These teapots are their most valuable possessions. When the lid of the pot is removed, the soul escapes in the form of a bubble and becomes liberated. It is assumed that seawater is deadly to them, uh, possibly forcing them onto land is deadly as well. My babies! We have to free them! I opened the next file. The Vojanoi didn't just appear here. Someone summoned it. This says that a witch can summon one for power and other magical gifts. The Vojanoi must feed at least once a year, in the same lunar cycle as it was summoned. If it doesn't get a victim, then the witch who summoned it is required to supply a victim. The other deaths, were they in December? Since Ray's phone hadn't survived our plummet into the lake, I did an internet search. Every one of them. I'm willing to bet there have been more that haven't been written about in 
2016 and 2019. So far, none this year. It says that on the night of the death, the witch will visit the shore and meet with the Vodjanoi to exchange an empty teapot for the promised surge of power. The witch wears an amulet of protection she fashioned in the symbol of the Vodjanoi so it doesn't hypnotize her, too. I'm trying to pull it up, but this Wi-Fi sucks. Wait, it says that if the creature is killed, the souls it has trapped are automatically freed. And we'd have much better odds getting it to shore than fighting it underwater. But how do we get him to surface? Abel, if I have to sacrifice myself to free my babies, I will do it. We have to set a trap. The picture finally loaded, and I gasped. It was a rendering of the frog-like creature with a glowing green symbol etched on its chest. We'd seen that symbol today. Ray snatched the phone from me. I'm going to kill her. She did this to us. To all of us. Just, just for power. Ray, we don't know that... We do know. That's the only thing that makes sense. My mother was a hack, Abel. A cheap roadside attraction for the gullible and the desperate. You saw that place today. She sacrificed her grandsons and her son-in-law for power. An orderly brought our clothes. We hurriedly dressed and then slipped out. No telling how long the police would be tied up and Ray refused to wait. We took an Uber to the nearest car rental place. I took out extra insurance on the pickup and we prayed we wouldn't have to drive it into the lake tonight. Mostly stalling to give Ray time to cool down and think, I convinced her to stop at a local Walmart where we bought a 10-gallon sprayer, a huge net, some rock salt, and some finer softening salt. The next stop was a pawn shop, where I was able to purchase a shotgun with very little issue. In Missouri, you're only required to be over 18 and to not have a felony record. I also picked up some shells, but I kept them away from Ray. Her burning rage had settled into some quiet coldness that was somehow even more terrifying. When we reached her mother's shop, she got out of the truck without waiting for me, and I scrambled to catch up. Where is she? She didn't wait on the girl to respond as she stalked down the hall. Janine! Janine! Where are you? Janine appeared in a doorway, giving us her quizzical smile. Rachel, darling, I didn't expect you. If you'll just give me ten minutes... I know what you did. How could you? Janine looked scared. Hell, I was scared. She motioned to whomever was in her office. King, please excuse me. Tell Marsha at the front desk to give you a voucher for next. Go! 
Ray shoved her backwards into the office, nearly taking out the client, who watched wide-eyed. Do I need to get her to call the police, Janine? That won't be necessary. This is my daughter, and this is a misunderstanding. I'll take care of it. The woman scurried away, and I stepped into the office, shutting the door behind me. I know what you did. I know about the Vodya Noi. They were your grandsons! Janine shot me a hard look. What has this man told you? He's preying on you, Rachel. I don't know. Ray made a grab for her necklace, and Janine jerked backwards so hard she nearly fell over her desk. Save it, mother. Curtis and Corey, Billy, all those other people. What? So you could be the best psychic in Missouri? <laughs> Come on! Janine must have seen it in her eyes that one more lie would only infuriate her further. She tried a different tact. Rachel, you don't understand. It wasn't about power. I was dying. Stage four cancer. The Vodianoi granted me not only power, but immortality. I would be dead right now if I hadn't made the deal. I wish you were. They were babies. Janine tried to grab her hand, but Ray jerked away. I didn't know. How was I to know Billy would take them there? I don't control who it takes. I had no idea. If I could give them back to you, don't you think I would do it? Ray picked up an expensive-looking paperweight and threw it against the wall. But you didn't care who else died. You let me think all these years that Billy killed his own children and you let him die today without saying one damn word! Janine tried to beg her forgiveness. I tried to keep Ray from tearing her limb from limb. I had her in a bear hold as she lunged at her mother. Sirens screamed in the distance. No one will ever believe you. Don't you know how crazy you sound? Let it go, Rachel, or you'll end up in an institution. I practically had to sling Ray backwards, pinning her against the wall. We can't free them if we're in jail. A pair of cops burst in at that moment. The younger one looked at Janine. Ma'am, are you all right? Janine smoothed her hair and shot Ray a challenging look. Uh, everything's fine. My daughter and I were just having a little disagreement. The cop looked at Ray. Miss, I think you need to go now. Perhaps you and your mother can discuss things later, over the telephone. You can go of your own accord, or I can escort you out. Ray glanced at me, and I nodded. She raised her hands and shrugged, turning toward the door. The cop's radio crackled. Copy that. 
All available officers, please respond to Lake Jericho. 1032 in progress. Over. My eyes widened. I knew what that meant. We're leaving, officer. We don't want any trouble. I grabbed Ray's arm and practically dragged her out the door. Once we were out of earshot, Ray jerked from my grasp. I was coming. You don't have to leave me out like a child. Code 1032 means drowning. Someone just drowned at Lake Jericho. That means... The creature will be out tonight. Ray texted Charlie and asked if we could park the truck at his trailer. Thankfully, he wasn't home, so we didn't have to explain why we were setting off on foot to the lake at night, carrying a shotgun, boxes of salt, and a fishing net. The news called it an accident. A curious onlooker who had a heart attack and fell into the frigid waters trying to see Ray's car in the depths. We knew the truth. I was shivering after an hour crouched in the bushes, but Ray never flinched. Her rage and determination were keeping her warm. Her mother didn't know I was a cop, too. Maybe she wouldn't be expecting us. When she appeared half an hour later, it seemed luck was on our side. She never even glanced around as she looked toward the shore. Maybe it was the moonlight... Or maybe it was magic, but the emerald necklace around her neck seemed to glow. From the center of the lake, the dark, still waters began to churn. Ray saw him first and clutched my arm. We edged closer. Janine paid us no attention at all. She stood stock still in the moonlight, smiling. The strange red-eyed frogman came trudging out of the water, holding out his webbed hands for the small white teapot Janine offered. I crept forward until I was sure he was in range. Maybe a little too far because his head swiveled and he looked right at me. I lifted the shotgun and fired. The shells were loaded with rock salt. The creature screamed and fell backwards in the water. Janine whipped around, staring at us with horrified eyes. Grabbing the net, we ran to it. Ray nearly plowed over her mother as we charged into the icy water, tossing the net over the creature. He was flailing, but I was scared he could heal himself if he got deeper in the water. We almost missed him, but I felt his weight in the net, and we yanked as hard as we could. Janine screeched and beat at my back, but I ignored her blows. We had him on shore. He struggled in the net, clutching at the gaping wound in his chest. Something black gurgled from it. Janine jumped on my back. Stop it! Get off him! 
Ray punched her in the face, and her mother tumbled backward. Ray sprinted to retrieve the boxes of salt we had hidden nearby. With a war cry, she ripped off the top of one and poured it into the creature's face. It shrieked so loudly it made my ears ring. Then, to my amazement, it began to dissolve like a slug. Ray clapped her hands like a child delighted with a magic trick as it slowly died. Abel! I turned to look at her. She was staring at her mother in horror. Janine was shriveling, too, her immortality revoked by the creature's death. Maybe she'd been telling the truth about the cancer because her skin bloated and turned green, then black. We watched her corpse contort in a slow, macabre dance. Her skin melted away, leaving nothing but bones and hair. And then they dissolved, too. All that remained of her was a pile of teeth, her clothing, and the necklace. With a cry of revulsion, Ray picked up a rock and hammered the necklace until it was unrecognizable. Then she scooped up the teeth and the necklace and hurled them into the lake. There wasn't even that much left of the Vodjanoi, just a weirdly reflective black spot on the ground. Ray, are you okay? But she wasn't looking at me. She was looking at the lake. Fascinated, we watched as several large bubbles broke the surface of the water and popped over the moonlit lake, each releasing a swirling white mist. Corey! Curtis! She knelt down and opened her arms. I I could almost see them, outlined in the mist, two little figures running towards her. She laughed when the smallest one stumbled and the bigger one stopped to right him before they continued to run. When they hit her arms, the force of them nearly rocked her backwards. Ray closed her arms around them, hugging and kissing the children I couldn't see. Then she looked past them and grimaced. Tears filled her eyes. <laughs> Ray, I'm so, so sorry. I should have... Yes, I should have... Please, forgive me. She sobbed, and I felt something cold brush past me. She reached as if taking his hand. Already? Can you stay a little? Yes, I know. I understand. I know that too. I know you'll take care of them. I watched her smack kisses in the air. 
go with Daddy. I'll see you again one day, I promise. I love you. She glanced up and smiled. All three of you. I just stood there, watching her watch them walk away. Shakily, she stood, and her face crumbled. Although Ray typically shied away from physical contact, when I opened my arms, she hurled herself into them. Not knowing what to say, I just held her as she cried. Then, exhibiting typical Ray fortitude, she pulled back and looked up at me. They're all at peace now. All of them. Get me out of here, Abe. I never want to see this place again. She didn't have to ask me twice. With any luck, we'd be back in Tennessee by sunrise. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening to the No Sleep Files and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This audio program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.